Welcome to Medicine on Call, where it's all about living with solutions. Today I have a colleague on who I haven't had on for quite a while, and I miss him. But I follow him on Twitter, and I suggest you do as well. Because every time I read a tweet, I'm learning about how our healthcare system is. Literally, I mean, to be honest, I think it's taking people out. People are on all sorts of medications, and they're getting sicker. And this is not a system that's working. I think we can all agree on that. Is Dr. Richard Ammerling. He was the former chairman um, at Beth Israel and then at Mount Sinai, which is my own alma mater, um, the Department of Nephrology. And he's someone who, he's a doctor who's on the front line of taking care of chronic disease. Everything seems to be diabetes related or hypertension related, and all of the dominoes that go along, falling that go along with those diseases. So, Richard, I wanted to thank you so much for coming on because your story is really interesting. You've gone from the standard medical school professorship, uh, if that's a word, to doing your own thing and, and thinking outside the box and now actually teaching the next generation of doctors. And I can't wait to see them come online because we need them desperately. That, that we do. There's a slight correction in that I am not the chair at that Okay. Just, just in attending the college, I directed the uh, PD program there. Gotcha. Okay, and now you're in. You're now a professor out of the country, are you not? Right. Yeah, I'm teaching medicine and clinical diagnosis at uh, St. George's University School of Medicine down in Grenada. How do you like it? Aside from the weather, that is. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's hard. It's hard to separate that out because I'm now in New York, where it's freezing and raining, and I just can't wait to get back down there. Uh, but. The school is great. I mean, I love interacting with the students, and there are a lot of them. Uh, I think we're the biggest medical school in the world at this point. We're the biggest provider of residences, uh, residents to the U.S. system. And uh, it has really been fascinating. Uh, I'm teaching clinical skills, which is sort of their introduction to clinical medicine in a way. And... Uh, it's been great. We have uh, big lecture halls plus small group sessions, and I'm actually working on designing my own elective course, which will be on an alternative way of practicing medicine based on basic science. Wow, I love that. I feel like um, uh, the healthcare or the medical education system in the United States has gone off the rails. It's not about that at all. I mean, I- I've heard of surgery residents not being not feeling they're able to perform surgery on their own after coming out of residency and people not knowing their anatomy and it's just I don't it's like core you know common core for healthcare in the United States and it's not like that you're describing old school medicine where your students are learning how to think on their own how to be critical thinkers and what they don't get here is that integrative side of the healthcare system and then we're going to go into that I'm sure, as we progress in the show, but first I wanted to get your take on this ruling in Texas about getting rid of the, uh, or or the fact that uh, the Affordable Care Act is not constitutional based on the tax model. What do you think about that? Well, I think it's not going to stand. If only it were true. I mean, it's just too good to be true, and of course it is, because this will never get through judicial review. And there's no question that the Roberts Court will, will reverse 
is ruling if it gets to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't even think you should waste too much time talking about it because it's just not going to happen. I wish it would, but it, but it won't. I mean, he, he's already shown us twice that he's going to do whatever he can to preserve this law. And uh, even re- rewriting the law as he did initially, reinterpreting the Congress's intent the second time around, forget it. It's just not going to happen. Not with Roberts as, as Chief Justice. And I don't even think, what's his name, uh, Kavanaugh is going to let go with this. Well, I'm, I'm he hoping... Was quite, oh, go ahead. He was critical. He was critical of, of the, uh, the complaint against Obamacare uh, when there was a lawsuit about the mandate. Mm-hmm. He, he said, well, what if the mandate were attacked? In other words, he gave Roberts the whole argument in, in his lower court. So I, I don't see him as a uh, savior either. So I just think we're going to have to work around Obamacare. Good that the mandate is gone, so at least there's not a financial penalty for not getting insurance. And we'll take, we'll take what we can get. I we agree. have to work around it. I agree with you. I mean, to me, the it's such an an, uh, an octopus. It has its tentacles in all aspects of the healthcare system. There's so much money that's being made in every single mid, mid, uh, middleman uh, provider in the yep. system, whether that's the insurance company, the big pharma, the hospital. They all stood to gain, and boy, did they during this last eight years. They sure did. But you know what? What was interesting they to sure. me? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, no. Well, that's exactly the problem, is that this isn't just socialized medicine, which it looks like, but what it really is is crony capitalism you know, at its worst. Mm-hmm. All these special interests have to write the law to their benefit. And it's all part of what I call the hijacking of medicine. And, you know, we will get into that for sure. Oh, absolutely. And let's talk about, like, most people... The, I think the the left mindset has been capitalism is evil, and they've actually, I think, defined what capitalism is. But what you just described, as you said before, it's not capitalism; it's crony capitalism. And what does that mean? Right. How do you how do you define crony capitalism for my listeners? Well, it's government handing out special favors to people that uh, line their pockets in one way or another. Special interest groups or big business uh, writing laws that benefit them. And this has been going on forever with the tax code and all that stuff. But this is why Obamacare was able to get through. It wasn't because there was such a great uh, enthusiasm for the government takeover of medicine. It was because they had backing from insurance agency, uh, uh, companies, pharma. Uh, they all stood to gain, and they have. So, I mean, the insurance thing is such an obvious scam where you're being forced to buy a policy that is loaded with all sorts of stuff that you're never going to use, and it gets raised your deductible, so you're never even going to use the insurance. So it's a dead giveaway to the insurance company. I think one of the things that people should have looked at that just confirms what you just said is the stock market. As soon as the Affordable Care Act passed, the stock prices for all of these entities went uh, that should have been a sign yeah. right there. If they're happy about it, you shouldn't be as a doctor or a patient because they seem to work against us 
right. I mean, growing capitalism, I think, is a polite way of saying fascism. Because that is really the Italian model under Mussolini, where the government was really in, in partnership with certain big companies. And this is what's going on in the States right now. The government is in partnership with the insurance companies, pharma to a certain extent. And they're, they're running the show entirely to their benefit. Look at all the, uh, the middlemen, as you say, uh, siphoning money away from the system, providing zero value. Zero care and just taking billions and billions of dollars out of the system while we who are actually providing the care are struggling. Exactly. And we've gotten such a, we've been defined by every physicians, everybody. We're the ones who are doing the necessary procedures, we're the ones making all the money. And in actuality, that's not the case. I mean, unless you're employed by a hospital and you're getting a salary. Yeah, those guys are making a salary, but trust me, they're working for it. But those of us who are on the independent side, it's a fight. I mean, I've had colleagues worry about whether they're going to make payroll or they're going to make their mortgage. This is not a joke for us. And it no. is putting people out of business and out of their livelihood. And it's not right. It really isn't. No. Well, part of the campaign has involved demonization of fee-for-service practice which is, of course, the core of private practice. You cannot run a private practice uh, without that model in some way. And they say that this is why we have such expensive health care, because you're getting rewarded for quantity, uh, just pump up your volume. And that, of course, is not true. And the irony is, in the hospital-based system where doctors are salaried, they're also being incentivized to eat as many patients as possible. Mm-hmm. So the, the incentives to push up the volume are probably even stronger in the hospital where you're getting paid based on these relative values, RVUs, and what does the RVU come down to? It comes down to how many billable hours or how many patients you need. <laughs> and how many tests you order. But it's not yeah, the doctor that's thinking. Yeah, I mean, the ER is for a great example. I remember taking calls to the ER before I got consulted. And it's for a tonsil abscess. You know, this is a clinical diagnosis. Those guys are ordering CTs like water. And it, the hospital is making money on these. But if you don't do it, then you might be considered to be a disruptive doctor. They may come after you for peer review. Don't stick your head up right. and ask a question because you will get it locked off. This is, and it is yeah. keep you running around with these uh, maintenance and certification tests that you spend in money and time. You just never get a break. I don't even know how the guys do it. Just, uh, uh, well, that's one of the reasons why there's so much what they call burnout. Mm-hmm. People are working under a system that they never anticipated they would be working under. And they're taking orders, they're being told how to practice. They're getting paid relatively little for the effort and time that they put into getting where they are. And it's not satisfying. I mean, they have a lot of debt. They're worried about paying it off. They're worried about having retirement. And Let's take our first break. 
Are you having problems with persistent bad breath, constant throat clearing, hoarseness, a cough that won't go away, a sore throat, or a feeling that something's always stuck in your throat? Why not find out what the problem is so it can be fixed? At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking time to work with our patients as a team to get to the root of the problem. Make an appointment today to see why Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Call 404-591-9100 or visit us at peachtreeentcenter.com. Are you having problems with persistent bad breath, constant throat clearing, hoarseness, a cough that won't go away, a sore throat, or a feeling that something's always stuck in your throat? Why not find out what the problem is so it can be fixed? At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking time to work with our patients as a team to get to the root of the problem. Make an appointment today to see why Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Call 404-591-9100 or visit us at peachtreeentcenter.com. patient-centered care for real, not just talking about it, but education of patients so they can take their power back, stay healthy, and actually save money and, and have a better quality of life. Now, before the break, Rich, we were talking about the Affordable Care Act Did you? I mean, and how the crony capitalism system works. There's an article that just came out in AMA, which actually really surprised me. I guess it should know. So the judiciary is really in the business now of legislation. They're not just sitting there. They're making policy. And the HHS had a rule that the hospitals had to take, had to pay, I should say, if they got a discount for a drug, they'd have to pass it along to the patient. There's now a judge that ruled in the District of Columbia that that they overturned that, and that the hospital should be able to mark up the discount because they're going to pass it along to patients. When have you ever seen that happen? I've never seen that happen. Patients don't get discounts. <laughs> I don't know where that money goes, no, but they're not it's not going to the patient. <laughs> this is the kind no, of history uh, we're talking about. It, it is. It is a, uh, it's hard to know even where to begin, but no, for sure, the, the uh, activist judges are running wild, and they are legislating from the bench right and left. They're exceeding their authority right and left. And that one, one more step on the road to tyranny, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. And healthcare tyranny is no joke. I mean, where if you don't have your health, you honestly don't have a lot going on. And another article came out recently about the side effects of the Affordable Care Act. I mean, with the Medicare patients and the 30-day readmit rule. And they're finding now, which is not a surprise, because I've written about it years ago, that people are yeah, dying. I mean, are they surprised right. that people are dying because they're not being readmitted? Tell us, I mean, you were, you had to admit patients under the Medicare system, chronically ill patients. I, I'm not sure if you were still here practicing when this Affordable Care Act rule came oh, yeah. into effect. How did, what did that oh, do yeah. for you on the front line? Put a face to that, because I don't think people really get a clue what that means. Well, I never paid any attention to it when it came down to having to readmit a patient. First of all, I wasn't even necessarily aware that they had been previously admitted, recently admitted. But uh, I was sitting regardless. Now, I didn't make the admission decision that was being made in the emergency room. So, uh, but 
early discharges were a result of Medicare billing procedures. In other words, you the hospitals for years were getting paid and still are under diagnosis-related group systems where they get paid a lump sum mm-hmm. for each patient based on the diagnosis and the severity. Okay, So if they can get out of the hospital quickly, they would make money. If they couldn't, they would lose money. So they started this push, getting everybody out early. They had social workers running around seeing patients, pushing them out of the hospital. They would discharge patients and put them in rehab, you know, little tricks like that. Medicare, 
that they would have gone the same route as we did. But look, you know, it's our own fault as a profession for allowing this to happen. And our leadership let us down. The leadership, after initially fighting Medicare, uh, bought into it and was co-opted by it and actually makes money off of it. I'm talking about the AMA. Mm-hmm. And, and then we were pretty much finished. And it, it just was downhill from there. Is there any way, well, let me get your take, since we're going down this, this rabbit hole, these proponents of Medicare for All, I mean, it's this push, this this mantra, I don't think people really even know what they're asking for, or, or, they, or do they? Because <laughs> if this is what it is now with the only part of the country in Medicare, what do you foresee if everybody had to be in the system? Oh, my word. I mean, it really is a nightmare. Of, of uh, great proportion. I mean, it's hard to imagine how bad it would be, but it will be called, will be horrendous. And what people don't understand is that it's no longer, it's no longer really going to be a private option. It will be sort of like Canada. And in fact, the proposed bill spells it out. It says that there will be no competing plans. So if you want to be outside of the system, you can. Technically, the outside, and you can technically contract for private services, but doctors who are outside the system will be increasingly rare because now it's going to cover everybody, right? So if you're not in the system, you're going to be scrambling for those few people who are looking outside. So it's a way, in a way, of killing private medicine once and for all, and that would be a major tragedy. People don't understand that all the advances in medicine come out of the private sector. All the advances in treatment come out of private doctors for the most part who are working uh, for their patients. And the high quality care is based in the private system. Uh, the, the new system is going to be hospital-based, relatively impersonal. You're not going to have a private physician. You're going to have whoever's on, that, on the ship when you happen to show up. Uh, there, there won't be that continuity. Patients, doctors are not going to know their patients very well. And quality of care is going to go away big time. I think you just said it all. I mean, that's something that people, once you go down the system, it's not going to come back that easily. We're already seeing the devastation in the medical education side of this, where people are becoming, being trained to be social justice warriors and not doctors. That's a problem. You're, you are now providing the major resource of doctors who are physicians, old school. I mean, God, thank God that you exist because if I had to go to one of the docs who are training now, I wouldn't want them to touch me. They don't know anything. That's the sad part. And on that note, let's take well, a break. Oh, go ahead. Let's take a small break because okay. um, I wanted to pick that up and come back. We were thinking about a song call. Okay. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, 
you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Welcome back to this call. Before the break, we were talking about the medical education system and the, the lack thereof. And I'm sorry, I cut you off before the break, Dr. Emily, but tell me, what you, what were you going to say? I was going to say, you're not even going to get to see a doctor, so don't worry about that. <laughs> well, what happens with the surgery? I mean, I guess you're going to have robotic surgery or basically just deny you the surgery. <laughs> No, you'll have practitioners of different, you know, guilts uh, and different degree levels doing surgery. Why not? Well, people, you know, you can, uh, you know, you can teach people how to do these things. It's true. They have nurses yeah, in the UK doing it. Yeah, there, there, there will be so few real doctors in this crazy world that it will have to be done by the what are called physician extenders. They're going to be the new doctors, the nurse practitioners, and the physician assistants. Well, I'm, I well, pray to stay healthy. We need to have, we need to go to the second part of what we need to talk about, which is how do you stay right. healthy? Because honestly, you do not want to be a part of the system. You may not come in. I mean, you may not come out once you go in. This is a terrible system that you're right. talking about, and it's already coming online. We're not talking about the future, folks. We're talking about medicine that exists now. It's only going to get worse. Oh, absolutely. I just it's this year, and oh, I agree. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a major crisis. Because, as you said at the beginning, people are getting uh, treated in a way that actually is now making them worse. Uh, rather than curing them, they are being managed, and they are being managed to death. So, uh, what, what do I mean by that? And this is, all, of course, part of the hijacking of medicine. And the major culprit here is the pharmaceutical industry, which over the years has has taken greater and greater control over every level of the medical profession, from education to research to practice. And it used to be that uh, they couldn't really get away with why? Because doctors were independent, and they, they controlled their education, and they controlled their uh, practice. They, they no longer really do at this point. So, for example, uh, I recently reviewed uh, our course on management of diabetes. It's all pharmaceutical based. One hundred percent pharmaceutical based. No what diet, no nutrition. No. Oh. What drugs are you going to give to achieve the optimal hemoglobin A1C or blood sugar level? And this is the course couldn't have been written any better than if, if the drug industry had done it themselves. They love having a numerical target that they can say, you must achieve this target, and then you're practicing good medicine. Well, how do you achieve it? Well, by giving sulfonylureas, which are toxic, insulin, which is toxic, and you get your numbers down that way. Or it doesn't matter that the patients are getting sicker, mm -hmm. heavier, more complications, 
here being managed, and this is now considered good medicine. So I pointed out to my colleague, who is the chair of this department, I said, you know, we really have to stand and talk about this, because in most cases, type 2 diabetes is reversible with the proper diet. And he looked at me kind of stunned. I said, really? He said, really? I said, yes. Yes, I've done it myself many times, and now there are some studies out confirming that this is doable. And this should be the primary focus of doctors. They should be trying to get patients healthy, not just manage them, manage their decline into amputation, kidney failure, blindness, and heart disease. So, uh, so that's one example. And unfortunately, this is mainstream medicine. If you go to a standard physician with uh, type 2 diabetes, that's what's going to happen. You're going to get put on several drugs. You're probably going to gain weight. And your diabetes, instead of being reversed, is just going to get worse and worse, and you're going to suffer the complications of diabetes. So this is one area where it's crucial to have an independent view. And a view that is based on, on science, because you, you have to understand how we develop diabetes, which is many years of overeating sugar and carbohydrates, developing fatty liver and insulin resistance, and at a certain point, your your pancreas can't produce enough insulin to keep your sugar uh, uh, under control because the adipose cells are all full of fat and can't accept any more energy in the form of glucose. Then you become insulin resistant, you actually get hyperglycemia. And of course, insulin resistance is the way your body's trying to defend itself against all the sugar. So instead of just uh, saying, look, let's cut out the source of the problem, which is sugar and processed carbohydrates, let us just give this patient medication to force those cells to take more sugar in and convert into more fat. And this is the standard of care, okay? It defies science. It is absolutely anti-scientific. Not only that, but if you look at the studies trying to show a benefit to what's called type glycemic control, type sugar sugar control, they know they don't they fail. They, they can't show that. In fact, the Accord study showed that the patients who were managed to a lower level of A1C actually died faster and increased mortality. Plus, they gained 10 kilos relative to the standard care group, and those those patients gained weight. I mean, so the current management paradigm is anti-scientific, and but the only way to get out of this is to go to special doctors who are aware of this. And you're not going to find them in the hospital system. You're going to have to go outside the hospital system and go to a direct primary care. Even there, you may have trouble. Because, you know, what I'm saying is not really out there in, in enough of a way so that people are, doctors are aware of it. Patients are going to have to do this on their own. Okay, uh, you know, you have to tell your patients, forget about what the doctor said. You need to come off these drugs and cure your diabetes through a diet. And if they do that, they get better. They lose weight, complications are stopped, and they uh, get into better health instead of just, you know, declining. So that's one example, which is probably the most egregious of, of how we are managing disease states now. 
And I just, I learned recently that uh, life expectancy in the United States has declined over the last couple of years. And I'm sure this is part of it because we're, our medical practice is not designed to restore health. It's designed to manage chronic disease and manage patients to death, literally manage them to death with tons and tons of medication that not only don't help, but in many cases make them worse. Can be more. And shooting for numbers, you described the hemoglobin A1C. If it gets lower and the mortality rate goes up, then what is the benefit of the hemoglobin A1C, or is there one? There isn't much. I mean, I use them to monitor success of my dietary therapy. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm taking patients that have a hemoglobin A1C of 14, and in six months, they're down at 8 or 7. So I, I'm using this to show that uh, I'm being effective, but it's as, a, as an outcome measure, it's very limited use. In other words, it doesn't really uh, predict um, hard outcomes. And well, let's just put it this way. The management based on the A1C doesn't predict who's going to do well and who's going to do badly. It all depends on how you manage. If you can lower A1C through diet, that's a home run. And if you lower it through insulin, you're probably making this patient sicker. Wow. So all of these long-term, you know, can last for a week injections of this insulin, these, these ancillary drugs, you're actually going in the wrong direction from what you're describing. Right. And wow. these are these are so lucrative. It's multi-tens of billions of dollars of sales, probably hundreds of billions of dollars of sales for diabetes medications around the world. And uh, the vast majority of them could be eliminated immediately with benefit to the population. This is so sick. The other other side of the coin is the cholesterol market and the anti-cholesterol drugs. This seems like they tag team on each other. How many people I see walk into my office on Lipitor and, you know, the the anti-hypoglycemic, they're not healthy either. I mean, is is there some correlation, I'm just curious, between lowering your cholesterol too much and things like neurological health, dementia, the problem with sex hormone production, all the stuff that goes on, you need cholesterol, you can't get rid of it. Right. I mean, what's up with that? Right. What's your take on that? I, I, I think that scam, which is what I call it, and others have called it, is a uh, travesty. Uh, the cholesterol theory is, in my view, bogus. Okay, it was based loosely on epidemiologic data. The, the, the studies that lowered cholesterol and looking at hard outcomes mostly failed or produced minimal results. The, the original one, the LRC, Lipid Research Clinic trial in 84, which started the whole ball rolling, which used cholesterol, bile acid sequestrant, to lower cholesterol, did achieve cholesterol lowering, but there was no difference in all-cause mortality. There was a slight decrease in cardiovascular incidence or mortality, I forget which, and they, they seized on this to declare the study a whopping success. And that, in a way, launched the whole statin era. Because, of course, bile acid sequestrants were difficult to take. They had side effects, called diarrhea, and people didn't want to take them. 
So when the statins came out, that was the new wonder drug. And when you look at the biochemistry, this is what I'm going to get at, if I can ever get this course approved and get it together. Look at the biochemistry of cholesterol synthesis. You realize that HNG-CoA reductase works at a very early step in cholesterol's synthetic pathway. You interfere with various volatile production, with uh, various retinols, ergocalciferol, which becomes vitamin D, all the all based on cholesterol, all the sex hormones, as you said, cortisone, aldosterone, all these come from cortisone, from cholesterol. Our nervous system is largely cholesterol-dependent, uh, and the brain is full of cholesterol. So I do believe that lowering cholesterol aggressively, particularly, is producing toxicity. It, uh, it interferes with uh, coenzyme Q production, so you get mitochondrial dysfunction in muscles and myopathy, and they tried to downplay this, but it's real. I mean, I've tried that a couple of times, and I couldn't tolerate it. I had the absolute debilitating muscle pain, mm-hmm. and I've seen this in many patients, with or without CK, creatine kinase, creatine kinase elevation, you still need it, uh, and it's, it's a sign that this is not a good drug, and it's when you just Think about the biochemistry. It wouldn't make sense that this would be good, that you would inhibit this vital biochemical pathway and expect that that's going to help people. It simply can't, just based on the biochemistry. And the studies, uh, the studies that looked at primary and secondary prevention look at uh, very small relative risk reductions on the order of 1% to 3% or so. Relative risk reductions, but they deceive people by looking at the, uh, at the uh, I'm sorry, very small absolute risk reduction. They deceive people by reporting the relative risk reduction. So you can, if you go from, say, an incidence of 2% to 1%, that's a 50% relative risk reduction. So you just had a 1% actual risk reduction. And if patients knew these numbers, nobody would take the drug. Wow. Right? Well, why would you why would you risk side effects for a one percent risk reduction, which is almost certainly clinically meaningless? <laughs> you wouldn't, but they don't want you to know that. Now we're no. going to take a small break because I want to ask you about the diet, keto diet specifically, because that's a big deal yes. right now. So let's take a line for our last break. We listen to medicine on call. From treatment of sinusitis with balloon dilation to minimally invasive office procedures to correct snoring, Peachtree ENT Center offers state-of-the-art care. We also specialize in price transparency. You'll know the cost of our ENT services before they're rendered, whether you have a high deductible plan or no insurance at all. Make an appointment today to find out why Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Call 404-591-9100 or visit us at peachtreeentcenter.com. You're listening to Medicine on Call, the place where healthcare, business, and current events connect. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. We're speaking with Dr. Richard Amelin. Professor, uh, nephrologist, and 
a, I think a healthcare future is frankly who's somebody who's speaking truth to power about you don't need a pill for everything. And then actually, in most cases, it's probably not helping us. Now, let's talk a bit about diets. There's a big debate, I think, going on with something called a ketogenic diet. And I've had conversations with people who are vegan. Which one? I mean, I, I personally did really well with the Atkins diet back in the day. And the ketogenic diet is, a, is more of a protein-based. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I mean, Atkins is, keto, is ketogenic. I mean, there really isn't that much difference in between them. But I'm absolutely fascinated by this because, I mean, I've been low-carb for probably 15, 20 years, personally. But when I got down to uh, Grenada, where I'm now living, uh, I, I even pushed it further. I went low-carb, high-fat, because I always felt, I always believed that this myth that fat was bad. But of course, it isn't. This is one of the great lies in medicine, which, which is that uh, fat is somehow awful. And you, just, you don't need to go back hundreds of thousands of years like the paleo people do. And I think that they have some good points, by the way. You just need to go back 50 or 60 years and think about how little obesity there was before the low-fat diet guidelines came out in the late 70s. Nobody was fat. Go look at an old movie. You see all these, these stick figures walking around. That's because they ate fat and they didn't eat all the time. There was very little snacking. The whole snack food industry hadn't really been formed yet. So uh, people were just naturally thin. So, well, the keto diet. What's fascinating me lately is that I believe now that the state of ketosis, which for your listeners, is what happens when you burn fat principally as your energy source. If you burn fat principally as your energy source, you generate ketones. Ketones are beta hydroxybutyrate, ketoacetate, and acetone. And these are energy substrates. They are burned for fuel by the brain and what I recently discovered, the heart. The heart actually has a preference for ketones. The brain has a preference for ketones, meaning that in studies where there is glucose available and ketones available, the brain preferentially burns ketones. And so does the heart, which is absolutely fascinating. So what does this mean? It means to me that we were built to be in ketosis, in the ketotic state. That is our natural state, that we are built to burn mostly fat for our energy, either fat from animals that we eat or dairy, or our own fat when we're fasting. And fasting was a normal part of life until recently, when we were told to eat all the time. So ketosis is probably the way we ought to be most of the time. Your brain functions absolutely beautifully burning ketones, much better than when you're burning sugar and the levels are fluctuating. And in fact, keto diet has been used successfully for epilepsy in children for many years and is now being trialed in patients with dementia because there is faulty glucose uptake in the brain and faulty glucose metabolism in the brain. And of course, you need energy constantly in your body and in your brain. If you run out of energy, cells die. So if you have, if you can give patients ketones in the form of a ketogenic diet, you bypass the, the, the defects in glucose.
glucose metabolism. And, and you allow the brain to function better. And there are definitely case reports of patients with profound dementia showing improvement with ketogenic diet and poor ingestion, injection of key things. That's amazing. That's amazing. I didn't know it that. Is. Yeah. It, it is. It is. And I, so, if you, uh, so what, what I did when I went down there, I, I started to eat more fat, so I would have like two bacon eggs a little bit of uh, whole grain toast, no sugar added, by the way, and butter, lots of butter. That would be my breakfast. And then I realized that lunchtime came around, I really wasn't that hungry, so I just started to skip lunch. Dinner, I would have uh, some grilled local pork, which is very good, or fish, and maybe a little bit of salad, some tomatoes, etc. And lo and behold, before I even knew what was happening to me, I was down 25 pounds. <laughs> wow. And I, I wasn't obese, really, right? Uh-uh. But I went from the 36 waist to the 32 without even trying. Here's the news. So I attribute this to both the high fat intake, right? And I, mean, I, I, I felt like I became a fat burner because I experienced no loss of energy throughout the day. Mm-hmm. Right? When you are when you're a carbohydrate burner, your energy level goes up and down, and you really feel it. And that's why you're constantly eating, because if you're just eating carbs, your insulin level is always going to be high, and you're always going to need more, right? Because you burn through it so quickly. Fat is there forever, right? You have plenty of fat. You can burn fat for days and days and days. And this is probably what people did back in the very ancient past when food wasn't that readily available. You were built to fast. And fasting has lots of health benefits. Have you heard of autophagy? Autophagy is the process where cells uh, get rid of damaged organelles. Mm-hmm. And it's a self-cleansing mechanism. And this occurs during fasting because it requires you to turn off your insulin, AMTK, and mTOR. Uh, so you cut down on these growth factors when you fast and you allow the body to restore itself through autophagy. So, fasting is healthy. That's what I did. I went from breakfast at 6 in the morning or so to dinner at 6 in the evening without eating anything. And was I ketotic? Absolutely. I would occasionally be urinistic, and I was, you know, strongly ketotic. So, again, what I, I recommend is now for patients. High fat, low carb, and intermittent fasting, and you will get rid of diabetes in the majority of patients who follow that diet. I would think your cholesterol would also be in uh, a very good range as well. Well, interestingly, I've always had a high cholesterol. My LDL has always been, I would say, 160, 170, but I've also had high HDL. So uh, I've never really had an indication for a stat. So everybody was trying to push them on me, <laughs> and I did try to point, and I literally could not tolerate them. I, I was so much pain that I couldn't really even sit for any length of period of time. I had such bad pride. So uh, those are gone. And uh, my recent cholesterol is actually now over, LDL is over 200. Again, my HDL is very high, 88, and my triglycerides are low, about 80 or so. So the triglycerides, HDL, 
HDL ratio almost one, which is very low. Okay. So that is a much more significant risk factor because that reflects the absence of insulin resistance. You have patients with insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome, they have very high triglycerides and low HDL. And that shows that they are at cardiovascular risk. It doesn't mean that those are actually causing cardiovascular risk. I, I, I'm not sure that that has been demonstrated, but that is shown to be a very atherogenic lipid profile. And that's really the only reason that I ever order lipids anymore, because I'm not going to prescribe that. I just think that they are more harmful than beneficial. Just imagine you're trying to push you know, preemptive statins on children, you know, if they're over, overweight. Instead of getting them in the gym and doing PE, they want these children to start taking drugs. Well, this, oh, it is. And this childhood obesity is absolutely shocking. And it's because the kids are being fed sugary stuff all day long. Of course they're going to get obese. You've got to stop giving them this stuff and they will lose weight. I think they don't need to go to the gym. Well, that's true. I mean, but you can get outside and play instead of the video games. I mean, that would be good as well. Yes, um, sure. We don't have to reinvent the wheel here is what you're saying. We need to go back to basics and stop. You know, what you are, what you eat. And you can control what you yes. put in your mouth. Now you have to do it with some intention because the pill route, just eloquently described, is not the answer. I agree. And you just have to eat the way your grandmother ate, or the way the French eat now, by the way, you know, high-fat diet. Uh, they're, they're very low cardiovascular risk in France. Uh, they intentionally were left out of NLT country study because they were, you know, uh, didn't show what he wanted to show. And uh, that's a wonderful diet. Lots of full-fat cheese, meat, eggs, butter. Yes, I say yes. It works for me. I have to tell you yes, too. Hey, um, we have uh, just a couple, like a minute left. How can people, do you have, meet you on Twitter? Because I know that you're really active on Twitter with great information and great um, links. Yeah, Twitter is just a wonderful source for this stuff. I've developed this network of uh, colleagues who, who all share information on Twitter. You can get me at, I'm at Dr. Amaran, D-R-A-M-E-R-L-I-N-G. And be happy to uh, follow you back. And I do post all the stuff, and it's uh, amazing, amazing how much information is available. Uh, but you just got to plug into it. You're not going to get it from standard sources, and you're probably not going to get it from your doctor, unfortunately. Um, and look for a doctor who's outside of the conventional approach, which is pharma-oriented. And if your doctors are really giving you two or three new prescriptions every time you go there, Probably not the right doctor. You just took the words out of my mouth. I couldn't have said it better. Thank you so much for coming on. I look forward to learning more from you when you come back on in the future. My pleasure, Leo. So great to catch up with you. Always a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Medicine on Call. You can follow me on Twitter, um, on Facebook, and uh, subscribe on iTunes. Thank you. Revolutionary talk for revolutionary times. Promoting peace, liberty, and prosperity around the clock. LibertyTalk.fm.